friends, welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I am said Forest. How are you? How are you doing this week? It's been a wild one. I mean, lots of changes on the COVID front, of course. And here in, in Idaho, at least, it's been really smoky. There's fires all around us and everything's kind of blowing in this northeasterly direction, which is intense. Uh, it feels like the world is <clears throat> drastically changing. And it's asking us to change along with it. But that's sort of something we often do, kicking and screaming. (laughs) But one way we can help facilitate times of change is in various forms of wellness and therapy, psychedelic work, insight, meditation, so forth and so on. And I have a conversation this week with Erica Zelfand. She's a family physician specializing in integrative and functional medicine. And so she does natural therapies, conventional medicine, as well as doing forms of uh, psychedelic, like resource education and, and, you know, consultations. So she does that virtually and in person. And I learned about her from our friend Ed Hallman, who runs a business in Portland, Oregon called 1201 Computer Repair. And uh, I, I met Ed years, years back. I was, when I was living in Portland, I was rehearsing once and I was on the ground fiddling with my looper pedal and I stood up and my head hit my Nord keyboard and the whole thing crashed to the ground. The keyboard like landed its corner on my laptop on the ground and totally smashed it apart. (laughs) And I was emailing around places to find it to get fixed. And uh, I saw that place, 1201, and I just emailed them saying, what's up? And Ed wrote me back and he's saying, yeah, we could fix that. And I see your email address says eastforest.org. If this is East Forest, I'd love to do it at cost because I just want to say thank you giving back for the music you've given me. So that was like an amazing synchronicity. And he did help me out and he has helped me out since. So here he is helping out again because he introduced us, uh, myself and Erica, and got this conversation started. So if you you need a computer repair and you're in Portland or you want a virtual help or repairs, they do that as well. Check them out. Um, But before we get into this conversation, I just want to say we did just add a couple live dates, if you can believe it or not. I know this is like a strange time to be announcing live dates with the Delta variant going around, but we actually had been trying to reschedule the Salt Lake date that had been moved previously from uh, being shut down by the county because they took over the venue. And we finally did get um, another option for a place to play. And then we threw in Denver because we actually found a spot to do it there as well. This was before Delta, but we, we're moving forward as best we can. Uh, there is a COVID policy for those events that's becoming kind of standard. Right now, it is proof of a negative test or a vaccination to attend. And of course, we have to comply with whatever's going on locally on the ground with any guidelines or rules. But so far, we can move forward with those events. So that'll be September 14th in Denver, Colorado at Asterix and September 16th in Salt Lake City at the Union Event Center. If you'd like to get tickets or learn more info about any of that stuff, uh, you can do so at eastforest.org tour. And you'll also see about the Tree Fort Music Festival. That's the weekend of September 23rd. I'm playing on Saturday night, and I'm also playing that morning, September 25th, Saturday, as part of the Yoga Fort with uh, my lovely lady, Marissa Rada Wepner, and they do all sorts of fun things like that. So we are working on other dates, uh, both in 2021 and 2022 in very select places, limited capacity for all of these. So if you are interested, do it soon. But the best way to know about this would be to get on the newsletter, which you can do also at eastforest.org. And thank you for the reviews of the podcast. And thank you to our council members uh, on the Patreon Everyone at eastforest.org, you can scroll down there and learn about our council on Patreon, which is where we share unreleased music, and sometimes I do lives and Q&As, and we have our monthly council. And it's just a way to support this podcast if you'd like to find a way to do that for as little as $4 a month. It's a way to say thanks and just give back. It's like a cup of coffee or something. So thanks for everybody who is able to do that. Um... That's about it for now. I could tell you other things, but I jibber and jabber too much. Let's get into more of a conversation with our new friend, Erica Zelfand. 
All right, Erica Zelfin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we were chatting, we had to restart, but um, so we'll pretend like our flow it starts right now, but it, re- it does. You were telling us a bit about uh, who you are and what you do, and um, but I do want to give a shout out to Ed, Eddie Hallman, who brought us together. We were talking about our stories of how we got to know him, and um, those may or may not be part of this. If I can grab that recording, I want to include it, but if not, shout out to Ed. So you are computer repair. There we go. There, there. <laughs> seriously, good things we, happen when bad things happen. <laughs> wow, that could be their new. That could actually be a really good motto. Uh, okay, so tell us again a bit about who you are and what you're up to. Yeah. So who I am? I'm a family physician. I specialize in integrative and functional medicine. I graduated from one of only six naturopathic medical schools in the country, and um, it became really clear after I opened my practice that the mental health epidemic is very much upon us, and that the tools we have, although helpful, um, are not enough. We needed more tools, and that led me to learn more about integrative mental health, which invariably led me to the world of psychedelics. And Mm. as I learned more about psychedelics, I realized, wow, the medical community really needs to know more about this. And there's this lag time in medicine of 17 years between when the research shows something and when that evidence-based medicine makes its way into the average practitioner's prescription. 17 years? That sounds very precise. Yes. There was a study and that was, you know, the estimate. Ah. And I, I thought, you know, when it comes to mental health, we don't have 17 years. And psychedelics are not new. We talk about, you know, the psychedelic renaissance. And it's like, it's not really, it's been here all the time. It's just people are talking about it more. And I thought, well, let's try and speed that up a little bit if we can. And so I started lecturing on the clinical applications of psychedelic medicine and presenting trainings and continuing education presentations to my fellow colleagues in the medical profession. And then that sort of bled into anyone that wanted to learn about psychedelics. And then the next thing I knew, I was getting on airplanes and traveling around the world because I realized I couldn't wait 17 years or however long it's going to be for legalization. And I need to start treating people now. So I traveled to parts of the world where I can do that. Um, And so I can now say I'm a psychedelic facilitator as well. And when I'm on the U.S. soil, I can work with ketamine legally. and, And that's what I do with folks here in the States. Oh, so you're doing ketamine-assisted therapy as part of your practice Mm -hmm. now? Yep, that's right. Interesting, okay. Well, it's interesting about this lag that you're talking about, and there's definitely, I think, uh, you know, as people are becoming a more above ground, so to speak, Mm -hmm. with their participation and interest. And I'm just curious, like, if, if, if you're out there talking about, like, tell us a bit about, like, what your background is that the, where's the information coming from that you're sharing? That, is it from firsthand experience or something else? Or I'm assuming this yeah. wasn't taught in naturopathic school. No, know. this is not taught in any medical school. Uh, Ibogaine was mentioned, I think, once in my training, uh, actually in an immunology course, not even you know anything pertaining specifically to mental health. Um, so most of the training that I've undergone, it's been a combination of self-study, of digging into PubMed and reading the scientific literature there, reading Mm. books, attending conferences. I also did some training through MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, um, their MDMA-assisted therapy training, um, and connecting with like-minded individuals. But then there comes a certain point where you can only learn so much from reading, and it comes time to, you know, actually do the work yourself and or do the work with others. Um, and so my own personal growth and development has happened alongside my academic growth and development. Um, and I have been able as a result to more meaningfully help people, to help my patients and help my clients and to help other practitioners help their patients and their clients more effectively. And so part of, I'll just say one more thing, part of how yeah, I've of done that is my, my, my pandemic project was to take my day-long training that I had for healthcare providers um, that anyone is welcome to come to. Um, and actually, our mutual friend, Eddie, w- came to my training. 
and I turned it into an online course. So practitioners and just regular folks who want to know how psychedelics work and what they actually do um, and how to use them responsibly can from anywhere in the world now take my online course, which is called The Science of Psychedelics. It's kind of crazy that, you know, the idea that let's say you're going to be a psychotherapist or any kind of facilitator or medical professional that's working in the space of psychedelic assisted therapy. And there's this large component of it that's undeniable that is psychological, spiritual. Mm -hmm. And to think that it's almost poo-pooed or it's still like in any other medical setting, it's like, well, if you try the drugs yourself, oh my God, that's not what you do in the studies or that's now, you know, you've crossed a a red line. And I almost feel like it should be a prerequisite for, Mm. uh, to do this kind of work. It's like, if you haven't plumbed the depths on some level, psychologically, it's sort of like, how can you know? Any therapist I've ever worked with, I always ask them, I said, look, you don't have to, you know, on personal level, have you had any experience with psychedelic states? Because it's kind of like the things I want to talk about relate to an expansion of the human experience and a depth to it that in some ways you can, it's hard to access those, those expanded states in other forms. It can be done, but it's rare, you know, most mm-hmm. people. So it's sort of like, how do you relate? And so if you're designing, like, how do you weave that in when you're trying to talk to providers and people who want to bring this into their practice? Or I'm assuming that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, well, it's it's tricky because healthcare providers are really held to a different standard than other folks are. And you know, I'm, I'm even taking a risk in talking to you, for example. Some of my healthcare providers would never admit that they had an interest in this topic, let alone that they have taken a psychedelic substance, substance themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why, you know, we have this huge problem in medicine. This is a bit of a digression, but it is relevant here. A lot of healthcare providers have substance use disorder. A lot of healthcare providers have alcohol use disorder and a variety of other ailments that they don't seek out help for. Because you seek out help, there's a record, you've got a black eye, and your license comes under review, Mm -hmm. and you could lose your whole livelihood. Mm. So healthcare providers are some of the sickest people that I know, because they have to stuff it, they have to hide it. It's part of our training that a lot of the vulnerability gets beaten out of us, as we are becoming doctors. And so by the time a doctor actually admits, I need help, they're really, really, really deeply in need of help because they've blown past all of the warning signs on the way to crisis mode. So, you know, for instance, I was just in Mexico where I was working with Ibogaine and a shocking number of our patients who are coming for treatment were healthcare providers. And I'm assuming with some form of addiction, it seems to be, okay. Opioid addiction. And are they they feeling that it can go down there and it's anonymous? Like it's another country. I can just do what the work I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. But if they were to go seek out treatment in the United States, wherever they get treated in the United States, the healthcare provider there is under their license obligation to report their colleagues. And there's no I began above board in the states and anyway. No yeah, the states and it anyway. maybe yeah. works for them. Yeah. So, so to answer your question on you know how how to get doctors and healthcare providers to come around to this is it's it's tricky. You know, not not every healthcare provider is going to relate to this on a personal level. They may relate to it more on an academic intellectual level. Every healthcare provider is going to agree agree with you that antidepressant medications don't help everybody and that we are running out of tools and that more and more people are having issues with mental health than we can help and that we need more tools. So whether someone can personally resonate with the importance of a mystical experience or not, doctors are opening their minds. There's also this situation where, you know, doctors of all people hate looking stupid and they hate looking like they don't know something, right? <laughs> we all have huge ego problems. I'm just going to say right now, for the record, nobody goes into medicine for 100% altruistic reasons. <laughs> but well, I'm laughing because I'm, you know, I'm thinking of some doctors. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like yeah. Doctors yeah. love being doctors, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. We really, you know, it's like, congratulations, you're a doctor. You can help belittle anyone that you like. Um, but 
yeah, what was I starting to say here? But, you know, but doctors really don't like it either when their patients come in patient after patient after patient. And they're like, hey, I heard about this on Joe Rogan. Yeah, what's well, like that's you like know, uh you call your financial person you you're like where how can I make money on bitcoin and they're just you're like right. you know it's it's you similar gotta know it's like, about the thing. Well, and everyone's everyone is it yeah. is bubbling up the psychedelic renaissance where it you yes, it's been around in the underground but it's much more in the above ground. So yes. people are looking for yeah. information, answers and uh, it's just interesting how different parties fit into that pie. And I would think mm-hmm. as you get closer and closer to the experience, like a facilitator, let's call it, I think they should have some uh, experience with the medicine. Or, or or maybe it's okay for them to be on a microdose or some kind of dose, right. an empathetic experience. There could be legitimate uh, reasons for that, that, that sort of break the model mm-hmm. we have medically, because that would not be how yeah. you do anything else in the, in the medical system. Sure. No, not at all. And, you know, I will say, I, I do need to go on record here. I have a very unpopular opinion. This definitely gets me some, like, eyebrow raises when I say this at medical conferences. I don't think that you have to have taken psychedelics yourself to be a good practitioner. But I do think that one's patients, how do I want to put this? Your patients will, and your clients will only go as deep as you have. And there are many roads to get there. There are many, many roads to get to depth. And the road that a practitioner takes doesn't have to necessarily be the same road that their patients take. But I do think that having a depth of experience for one's own self, psycho-spiritually, mystically, however you want to phrase it, yeah, I think it does make people better practitioners. I like how you put that. And I actually thought you said there's many roads that lead to death instead of death. Oh, that too. <laughs> and I was like, that's so interesting. And that's a cool way. But then I started thinking about that, like all the roads that lead to death. And so the choices and paths that we can take mm. and uh, that there there are many. But in some ways, it's a kind of vulnerability that you're speaking yeah. to, you know, and and, it, and that's really like, are you willing to bring that human element to the table? Uh, because these states that you can get to potentially are quite, they're so vulnerable and yeah. tender. and uh, And so that's not to say, it doesn't take a form of just compassion that's open to anybody, you know, really, you're right. right. You don't need to, you don't really need to know anything. It's just about a kind of showing up and, mm-hmm. uh, an openness to the experience. But, uh, so what are you finding as, as you are working with like harm reduction approach and you're trying to c- consult with people, like w- what are, what are some of the things that are coming up and what are the pitfalls that you feel like we're kind of missing as this whole thing is starting to get pieced together in a public way? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> I mean, well, I was... <laughs> pick something. I mean, a lot of the listeners, yeah. I think, you know, we, we, they know a lot about the basics of what's going on and sure. probably have some experience or not. But I mean, you know, we don't need to start with the like, why psilocybin's good for you or, you know, why it can right. help or what's yeah. going on in the scene. I think it's like, let's get into the weeds and uh, let's get in the talk weeds. about yeah. what's emerging. Well, you know, one one big concern I have that I'm actually planning to present on this fall at a conference is this polarity that has been created between psychedelic work and pharmacology. And I think as guilty as the conventional medical model has been in rolling its eyes at psychedelic medicine, I think a lot of people in the psychedelic world are equally guilty of dismissing the potential therapeutic value of pharmaceutical medication. And as someone who is trained in both systems, you know, I I do prescribe pharmaceutical medications. I prescribe also botanicals and nutraceuticals. And I believe in the value of psychedelics. What I have found is that there is a place for all of it. And what works well for one person might not work well for another. And you don't have to pick just one system. So I'm consulting with patients and with clients who are pulling actually from all three systems. Um, You know, one patient in particular is doing fantastic on a combination of pyridoxal 5-phosphate, which is a form of B6, a low dose of Cymbalta, and journeying with psilocybin one to two times a year. And that has been her pathway to recovery. And you don't have to, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And what I really see happening in the psychedelic world is, first of all, everyone's saying you have to get off of your psych meds to do psychedelics, which is not 
sometimes true, not necessarily. It depends on the psychedelic. You know, you definitely have to get off your psych meds before right. you do ayahuasca, for example. Right. Um, but not to do ketamine. And very often people can stay on their meds. Dep- again, depends on the meds and the dose and whatnot uh, to do psilocybin and, and various other medicines. And, you know, also what I see happening in the psychedelic world is people kind of rolling their eyes at like, oh, you know, you take fluoxetine, which is Prozac, every day. Oh, what a crutch. And then that person goes and smokes weed three times a day. Yeah, or drinks coffee every morning or a glass of wine at night. It's like, we're chemical systems. Yeah. Really, I mean, that's all we are. Even our dopamine, oxytocin, going on a run, listening to interesting music, it's all chemical reactions creating our human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And see, and, and the pathway back to health and health maintenance, it, you know, I, I'm kind of of this mentality. I used to really be on my high horse, especially since I chose to do naturopathic medicine, like, oh, conventional medicine. I mean, it has its place, but whatever. No, it all has its place. And, and, and for different folks, different things are going to work to help them maintain a life experience that helps them have the most meaningful human experience the most rewarding human experience that they can have. When I broke my arm three times, every time I was pretty damn grateful for like the guys and gals who know how to get in there and do use the screw gun. And (laughs) we're good at that. Um, But there were times in my life where as an adolescence, I remember like being really depressed and being so young and not knowing anything about anything my parents just kind of like, what do we do? And we go to the doctor and never once being like tested for my vitamin D level or asked what my diet is or mm-hmm. anything like that. Just kind of just like, wow, did you have any traumas, you know, or I guess not, I don't know. We just can't figure out why you're struggling. Oh, you live in Oregon and it's, you know, it's, it's <laughs> Where the sun doesn't you, shine my vitamin here. D could have been in the <laughs> toilet, you know? And like, yeah. so you know, you just, I also think about diet and just you know, what you input into your body on all levels, energetically mm-hmm. and physically, and how little credence that is given from the typical medical system when you're trying to look at a holistic yeah. picture of how you feel mm-hmm. and your wellness. Uh, and the psychedelic experience is no panacea, uh, but it can sometimes show you and help you work through uh, traumas, repressed memories, physical uh, trauma, perhaps even latent things that need to come mm-hmm. out, uh, particularly with the right guidance. Yet uh, we often don't look at just things like diet. And I know with naturopathic <laughs> medicine, it's huge. You know, yes. for, even for the psychedelic experience, when people are like, this is, I really want all this stuff from it. It's like, okay, how are you supporting your, your system of your body and your, uh, daily? Mm-hmm. And and that's something that we see in individuals who microdose is they tend to gravitate toward wanting to eat healthier and exercise mm. more. It just sort of happens on its own. It's one of the ways in which psychedelic substance helps push the person back into a place of equilibrium. That's interesting. Junk food doesn't taste as good and healthy <laughs> food tastes better and cigarettes are kind of gross. <laughs> I wonder, you know, I wonder if we'll get to a place in the future where we view microdoses as a, like a vitamin. Like it's like, right. you know, like taking a, a, a microdose of LSD or something is considered like, oh, that's way healthier than coffee every day. Or like, mm-hmm. oh, that's just pure benefits. You know, the subperceptual, just like, you know, I, oh yeah, I get, I get stuff done. Right. And um, it's also maybe bled into some other things in my life. You'll never know if it's a one-to-one relationship, but you think about like the way coffee and the revolution it did in the industrial revolution and really building yeah. this whole country and how we've, mm-hmm. we've built our country largely around, you know, stimulant. Um, I'm just curious, like where that could go if like these other drugs like psilocybin, microdosing or others became not just accepted, but respected, recommended. Sure. Well, and to that point, Krishna, is it wouldn't be a everyone do this all the time, right? Like not everyone drinks coffee and not everyone needs to take vitamin A, right? There you go. Let's just add this to the toolkit of reasonable options that one can turn to for different situations. So you were talking about like pharmaceuticals and as opposed to like a plant-based approach is called that, even though the division, if you think about it, on a chemical level, there really isn't much of one. 
but that is something that's coming up. Like some of these companies, whether it's Compass Pathways, uh, or there are others that are essentially pharmaceutical companies or those pharmaceutical arms that are working to produce the psilocybin, some patent discussions that are like pretty sticky about like yeah. pat- patenting things about a journey or let alone the medicine. Um, mm-hmm. What are you coming across as like things like Measure 109 in Oregon are coming on board and and some some of the things maybe that you're looking out for? You know, I'm I'm not a corporation. I'm not a corporate minded person. I'm I'm a doctor. I'm a healer. I'm here to heal people. That's I'm just keeping my head in that game. And you know, you can patent things about an experience. Okay, fine. Good luck enforcing that. You know, yeah, or good luck doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's fine. And, and, you know, patents expire also. And it's like, okay, you patented, like, you know, Bikram's yoga. That's, Bikram did not invent hot yoga, right? He took a series of, of moves and put them in a particular order and patented them. You do those same moves in a different order. You can call it something else. Yeah. So, you know, in, in a way, I'm actually very grateful to these interests that are spending lots and lots and lots of money to take out these patents because a lot of them are funding research and a lot of them are normalizing this work and that benefits all of us. So like, for example, I'm grateful to Johnson and Johnson for doing all of those studies on esketamine. And now we have the drugs Spravato. Do I use Spravato with my patients? Heck no. I see absolutely no reason to use Spravato when I can get generic ketamine for pennies in comparison. But their research helped me help my patients and I learned from their research and it made me a better practitioner. And you know what? They're going to make their money back. And that's, that's for them to eat five grams of mushrooms and figure out if they feel good about that or not. That's, that's not my boat to row. You know, yeah. I can just focus on, on myself and my patients and you know, I sleep well at night. Let me ask you about ketamine for a second. Um, I've had some experience therapeutically with it, and it's been really beneficial for for myself with anxiety reduction, I guess, and depression too. And I've been trying to know if, like, if there is any research out there aside from just what I hear in my own experience about, like, how much people tend to need to take. Like, is it like four sessions or three to six within X number of weeks? And then it seems to have a benefit for months or is it really just all over the place for different people? Well, you may be asking the wrong person because I'm an advocate for individualized medicine. So I do different things for different people. A lot of what the literature is around is what's called the Diamond and McShane model, which is doing ketamine intravenously where you infuse Mm. half a milligram of ketamine per kilogram of the patient's body weight infused over 40 minutes. And that was not developed as this, wow, this is the way to do ketamine. That was just copied from the chemotherapy model as an efficient way to run a practice because then you can schedule the appointments on the hour. Um, And then this, this thought of, you know, doing six treatments in a cluster of two weeks that was borrowed from, you know, electroconvulsive therapy. That was just, let's copy this model and see if this works. Personally, the doing intravenous ketamine with folks at a dose of half a milligram per kilogram of body weight, I do think it works. It's my least favorite way to do ketamine with folks. Um, I think that, and I think six treatments in two weeks is a heck of a lot of ketamine to put into somebody. Some folks need it. Some folks do well with it. But to copy and paste this to every single person who wants to do ketamine, I, I think is misguided. What's your favorite method? Depends on what the person needs. Oh, you don't. Okay. There is no favorite. So, I got yeah, you. I know. So, but, uh, I, but I will say, you know, um, if, we're, if we're talking about using a needle, like just do an intramuscular injection. Like why, why does this needle have to be in this person's arm? It's strong. Yeah. Those, that's, sure. I had that it's, once and I was blown yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, also, you know, what, what I do with, with my patients is I, I do needle free. There's never a needle, almost never. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, you can insufflate it, which is a nice way of saying snorting. Mm. Um, you can get it compounded as a nasal spray. You can What's put that called? Insu- insu- insufflating. Insufflate. Oh, insufflate. I gotta remember yes. that. 
That's okay. a classy way of saying snorting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Insufflate. You can even do ketamine rectally. You, you can have it compounded as rectal wow. suppositories. Yeah. I imagine um, that could work. Okay. It absolutely works. It all, and that's it. The beautiful thing with ketamine is I, I once actually interviewed Raquel Bennett, who's kind of the ketamine guru. And I was like, so which, which way? And she's like, they all work. <laughs> and I have really, I really found that to be true. It all works. But you know, you, you, you work with the patient. Is this someone who has a history of IV drug use? Why does there need to be a needle involved? You know, is this someone who has a history of abusing cocaine? Okay, then we're not going to do the insufflation route. And then, then, then there's the dose range. Is this someone who's ready to do a psychedelic exploration? If so, right. then you crank it up. Half, half a meg per kid is not going to get them there. Other patients, I have them microdosing ketamine. They take it every day as they would like a Prozac or, you know, Cymbalta or one of those other meds. Um, and they do great with it. So they're really having to sort of pay attention to how they feel. And, you know, that's the real litmus yeah. test about what's working for, for them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the the other thing we look at with ketamine is, as with all of these these therapies, is if you want to run an efficient business, then you just keep giving people ketamine, right? But if you want to improve the mileage that the person gets out of that treatment, there's nothing like pairing ketamine with therapy. The two just go together like chocolate and peanut butter. They just... Do you mean so well therapy in the actual moment or the th session where you're receiving the ketamine or as an integration sessions post-ketamine? It depends on the dose of the ketamine. So if you're giving someone like a, if you're putting someone in a K-hole and have, giving them a psychedelic trip, they can't talk. You're not going to have an effective therapy session there. But their uh, neuroplasticity, their ability to learn and unlearn is going to be there for 48 hours after that treatment. So to get somebody back into the office to see their therapist within a day or two after their ketamine trip, they may have breakthroughs in therapy that they might not have had before. But you got to like you got to get it in that window. The other option is to dose it lower, where the person kind of feels relaxed, like as if they drank a couple glasses of wine, and it kind of drops some of the guarding. And yeah. then you can kind of get in there. They can still talk. They can still sit up in the chair, or maybe they're like you know leaning back a little bit. But, you know, they can still engage in a conversation, but they're a little bit, there's less of the shame layer there. There's less of the guarding there. And you, and you can go deeper with them. Well, and I then think group this, therapy works too in that context. Yeah. And I think this is relevant too, most likely to other forms of psychedelic therapy as they, as they come online in the years, like mm -hmm. psilocybin perhaps. It's like, it'd be interesting to know if there's that same kind of neuroplastic window you know, um, mm -hmm. even for yourself to kind of really pay attention to like this really ripe time for integration, exploring, you know, whatever it is that your practices you're using, free riding or whatnot to, mm -hmm. to dig in there. Because I think in the session itself, like, let's say they go really deep, but there's that, that kind of those hours as golden hours as they're coming out and coming back, very receptive. It'd be nice if we had as part of like normal practice, that those elements of ritual and, and yeah. ceremonies, a little bit of that reverence and basic protocol. And of course, I'm very biased to what music can do inside that experience. Mm -hmm. But that's something I've seen a bit as an oversight in some of these ketamine businesses. They're very focused on administering the ketamine, as you said, and like, yeah. hey, it has these scientific benefits. Let's just get it out there. But it's like, but how can we hold people through these states when sometimes, as you said, like K-holes or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. very deep very vulnerable. Some real stuff can come up. It can be very destabilizing. And it's important to kind of like prepare for that in a sense as, as, a, as a provider. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I'll say is you don't have to do it all yourself as a provider. So, for example, a lot of my colleagues in the medical community, <clears throat> they're not going to make good facilitators. They don't know the first thing about therapy, and that's okay. They don't need to go drop everything they're doing and do a bunch of trainings if they don't feel like that path is calling to them. They can still prescribe the medicine and then tell the patient, okay, I'm prescribing this medicine to you. This anesthesiologist is going to administer it at the ketamine mill down the street, and I'm referring you to this therapist, and I want you to see this therapist within 48 hours of your infusions. You know, and, and you really don't have to do all of the pieces yourself as a provider. And, and I will say I do counseling in my practice, but mm. I, I'm not a master's level 
counseling therapy, you know, psychologists, I know my limitations and I refer out all the time. I refer people out all the time. And unfortunately, as long as a lot of this work remains underground or illegal, it becomes a lot more challenging to create a cohesive care team for a person. And, you know, that's, that's another way in which, from a harm reduction standpoint, we've got to legalize this stuff. Because, you know, and in the case of ketamine, if you want to get a ketamine infusion, it depends on where you go. It can be anywhere from 200 to $1,000 per treatment. Right. Who, what's going to stop someone from buying ketamine and snorting it in their living room? Uh, well, the, yeah. I mean, for my, I think for the average muggle, they're like, how do I get it? But um, right. even people I know who aren't, you know, they're pretty resourced and they're still like, how do I get it? <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, but you're right. It's a, not an expensive medicine in itself. As you, as you pointed out, it's generic. And so um, that disparity in price is a bit troubling because I feel like access is a big part of this. And it'd really be great if there's just ways to open this up to all walks of people, especially considering that the cost of the medicine itself is not high. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, ketamine's dirt cheap and mushrooms grow out of the ground. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, those are facts. Yeah. yeah, So as you as you're doing this, you you said that you were taking a risk by talking about this. and. I understand what some of those aspects are, but at the same time, on the other side of that coin, there's so much energy and momentum. Um, it seems like you're choosing to put yourself out there to be ahead of the curve and to like mm-hmm. fill a niche. Um, and so tell me a bit about that friction, if there is any for you between oh <laughs> uh, being ahead, but also, you know, ahead of our skis, uh, but also wanting to be part of that vanguard. Right. Well, I will say I'm no stranger to having people think that what I do is weird. Um, I went into a very niche, tiny branch of medicine that is, you know, the AMA is trying to choke out. Um, But there's this like little stronghold of, you know, naturopathic medical schools that refuse to die. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm, I'm used to people rolling their eyes at me when I say things. And then five years later, they say it as if it's gospel themselves. Like, hey, you know, delayed cord clamping is a good idea after a baby is born. Or, hey, you know, the kinds of microbes that are in the gut can influence your brain health. And then like, you know, people roll their eyes. And then five years later, I'm at a conventional medical conference. And they're talking about how important the microbiome is on mental health. And I'm like, nature paths have been saying this for decades, folks. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So I'm I'm no stranger to being on, you know, an er, what's, you know, what some people might call being a quack, you know, for me, that's, I call it being an early adopter. That's not new to me. So I see myself as being, an, this is yet another way in which I'm an early adopter. This is just like probiotics. This is just like delayed cord clamping. It's just going to be a matter of time before people roll their eyes and realize this, this is obvious. And, you know, and as with any position in which someone's an early adopter or pioneer, there's going to be risk involved and not everyone's going to get it. Um, and that's, that's unfortunately the cost of doing business. Um, and so to the best of my ability, you know, I, I, I try to walk that as gracefully with as much patience as I can. I'm definitely not interested in poking the bear. You know, some people are self-righteous or intentionally antagonistic. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's not me. I'm just, I'm a healer. I'm here to help people. The planet is really, really hurting right now. And I see, I see a way for me to make some pretty meaningful contribution here to alleviating some of the human suffering. And, you know, I'm trying to do it in ways that don't get me thrown in jail or lose my medical license. <laughs> so, I think Naturally. I'm walking it pretty well, I'm not breaking any laws. Um, but, you know, some feathers are getting ruffled. Are there some other things you're seeing right now that you're kind of, we put that in that bucket? that in five years they would be more accepted, but right now they're not, or that they're sort of getting poo-pooed? I mean, I, I hope that we come around to the importance of nutrition. My goodness. Um. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's been, I mean, the funny thing about that is like, there's so many different opinions. Like, you know, we go through all these different like fads of information from the low fat mm-hmm. to, I mean, this goes on and on. So I think right. some people throw up their hands and they're just like, who knows, you know, and then the food pyramid and 
with the farm yeah. bill. It goes, you know, it's, it's a deep hole if you get yeah. into that. Well, yeah. And now we're subsidizing, like, what are the foods? Corn and soy and wheat, like, seriously? Those yeah. are the foods we're subsidizing? Yeah. Like, yikes. Okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And, and you know, we, there, we, we do need to address this alarming growth of autoimmune diseases, of allergic conditions, and of autism spectrum disorder. Like, are we going to do anything about this, folks? Or are we just... What is can this, we do? I mean, this is our it, new it, normal, right? Well, maybe it, it, I'm imagining it's disparate causes. So it's sort of probably challenging to address. I mean, I've heard things yeah. like the more you protect ourselves, maybe with allergies, for instance, the worse it mm-hmm. can get as you're getting older. But um, that's that's an interesting subject. I don't know if you're willing to hop that's into that. Whole, at all. That's a whole but other I, rabbit hole. I, <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Well, autoimmune in general, I think, because I, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some kind of autoimmune response in relationship to COVID, and there may be, yeah, yeah, and and so yeah. that's interesting. And you know, right. I, and in general, if you think about autoimmune and also its relationship to this the psychological element mm-hmm. uh, and pain in general and, mm-hmm. and disease and and that that role it plays, it it is sort of all tying together in, in that in which case dealing with psychological trauma repressed emotions and how the psychedelics can particularly help with that sometimes in therapeutic mm-hmm. settings could be a real key perhaps to unlock some of these other ailments you know I, I think that if there is a, a psycho spiritual layer to a physical ailment I do think that psychedelics can absolutely help some ailments are not super informed by, you know, psychology or emotions. Sometimes it's, you just got a piece of glass in your foot, you know, psilocybin's not going to help get it out. You need a pair of tweezers (laughs) to pull them out. Right. Um, But, but yeah, as you said, Krishna, a lot of ailments do, they do have that, that psycho-spiritual layer and this medicine may very well help with that. And, and that includes physical ailments and autoimmune diseases and chronic diseases that have no name, where the person's been to the Mayo Clinic and a million other places, and no one can tell them what's wrong. Yeah, you think about the placebo effect. Right. It's a real, it's like, yeah, it's a real thing. <laughs> we, It's quite powerful, like what we can sort yeah. of perceive and what happens in our lives and our bodies. Yeah, like fancy that. Our, our minds can change outcomes for <laughs> us and others. Like, wow, you know, lo and behold. Yeah. Yeah, we say the placebo effect in studies. We we sort of assume that means like, oh, that's the stuff that was like, didn't matter or was random. It's like, right. in some ways, it shows uh, it's this other very powerful drug in a way. I mean, yeah, that's totally free <laughs> and <yeah>. environmentally sustainable <laughs> with yeah. no side effects. <laughs> well, had there been, if you're willing to talk about it, any personal experiences for you that sort of propelled you to to take these leaps or even to like dedicate yourself in this way or take the risks that you're speaking to? Well, I, you know, I will say that reading about something is one thing and seeing it work for yourself is quite another. And at a certain point, seeing this medicine work once, twice, three times, at a certain point, there's just a tipping point where like, you just drink the Kool-Aid and you're in. It's <laughs> you know? one way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And and the the remarkable outcomes, you know, I, I am kind of talking biomedically here. The remarkable clinical outcomes that I have seen have piqued my interest in this work. And um it's by no means the only thing that I do. Um and I will say also to be clear. People consult me from all over the world and they say, I'm thinking about doing psychedelics. What do you think? And then I spend an hour with them. We talk about their medical history, their goals, their family history. You know, what have they tried? What have they not tried? And I don't know. I'm making up a number, maybe 25, 20, 25% of the time. I tell the person, I don't think that you should do psychedelics. I don't think that this is what you need for this ailment at this time in your life. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes I even say, I think this would harm you based on what you've got going on. Um, so, you know, to, I, I feel like I, I say this every time I talk to anybody and it's being recorded, but <laughs> 
one of my favorite sayings is to everything there is a season. And, you know, psychedelics have a season and that season has been talked about in hushed tones for a very long time. But now it's here. The season's here and it's in bloom. It's like, are you going to smell the roses or are you going to not smell the roses? I would recommend smelling them because they smell like heaven. <laughs> they're absolutely delightful and they're here. Um, mm. So, yeah. What are you uh, both hopeful for uh, either personally, it could be broader than just this subject or within this field, but also watchful for? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that people are going to start loving themselves more meaningfully and taking care of one another more consistently. And I think that would solve a lot of the pain and suffering that's on this planet. Now, I've got no illusions. I don't think that, you know, we're going to have the end of wars and famines and genocides anytime soon. You know, I just don't. Suffering is, is part of being alive. But I hope that we can have less of it, you know, less frequently, less intensity of it. Um, and, you know, what I'm watchful for in the world of psychedelics is greed. There's a lot of greed. And it's not just in psychedelics. It's in every industry. It's particularly disheartening in this one. Um, but it is everywhere. And, and I will say, typically, the people that I have seen kind of rewinding maybe a decade or two, for example, in cannabis, a lot of the people who got busted in cannabis were the ones who got greedy. And I just hope that people that are doing this are, are, are doing it with an eye on, on a virtuous reason. And it's, it's going to be part of the picture because it's part of the human experience too, greed. And it's, we're inside this capitalistic system that on one hand is the driver and the other hand can be the poison. Yeah. But it's in it. And yeah. so to it's the say gas that, and the brakes, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. It's sort of what's making all these companies and everyone be like, let's go fast. Um, I'm sure there's a part of, I know some of these folks and some of them it absolutely is like, they really like, let's go fast because we, I think we can now and mm -hmm. it's needed. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there's that other side of how the money could potentially corrupt for sure. Yeah. And I guess we'll have to keep an eye on that, but it's good. It's going to be part of it. It is. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, the money, I will say the money makes it possible too. you know, it does, it does let it, let it go bigger, faster and reach more people. Well, and I hope it does reach more people. I mean, I, and I mean that more just like the doors open for anyone who's interested, not just people who can afford it. And that right. is a little bit, I mean, that's, inside this bigger system of our medical system where it's like, you know, the whole thing, it's like access is still part of that and has been for yep. a very long time. And that's still Huge. something we need to, <laughs> we need to work on. Huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As it turns out, we need a single payer system, but there I go saying racy things. <laughs> well, the fact that that's racy, that's, I mean, come on, that's a lot of people, a lot of people want that, uh, even yeah. to have the option you know, to say like you yeah. could join into that if it, we don't even have that right now. Uh, you know, in addition to being a, a, a patient, I'm also a doctor and I will say nobody likes our system. Yeah. Doctors hate it as much as the patients do. Doctors don't like having to conduct a seven minute visit. It doesn't, it doesn't work for anyone. Yeah. 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 It's true. Um, it just sort of, gets into our larger senses of time. And in some ways, psychedelic therapy breaks the system a little bit because it takes a long time. You know, even ketamine, right. we're talking hours, you know, really realistically yeah, from start to finish. Well, the patient's tying up your room for an hour and a half. At least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And you get into psilocybin, you're looking at most of the day and LSD, ibogaine, you're into like day two you know, mm -hmm. so, or yeah. more ayahuasca so uh, they they do they do sort of it is the kryptonite of the hyperspeed system mm -hmm. in that it's like look you know sometimes good things come to those who wait but that doesn't right. fit into like the billable minutes in the same way and that's when things get very expensive no. well that's when you need volume that's when you need to get a big clinic where you can run 20 rooms at a time and then you hire some mid-levels not physicians right 
to yeah. run it and yeah, la, 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 la. all this all the stuff that that's you know that's not um that's not what i was put on this earth to do someone else was was put on this earth to crunch those numbers but and you know c- community <laughs> acupuncture in portland that started yeah, there sure. the, in the recliners and that was their model that's really blossomed it's been around for a long time yeah. now and sliding scale i think there's something there uh probably on certainly with ketamine you could probably go in that direction my partner is a ketamine therapist here in boise and she, but her the way yeah. she does it it's groups small groups and so that yeah. already keeps the cost down and Absolutely. no one was doing that here but it seems to be there's that added benefit of sort of that group connection and a small sharing mm-hmm. circle and yeah um, well and and one thing that we're we're seeing in oregon which just passed ballot measure 110 which uh legalized psilocybin assisted therapy the state now has two years to figure out how they're actually going to administer this. But one of the stipulations of the ballot measure is to be a psilocybin therapist. You do not have to already have a, a certificate or a license. You don't have to be a psychotherapist. You don't have to be a doctor to facilitate a psilocybin experience for someone. And that is inherently going to make it more affordable. That's inherently going to put more providers out there in the field. And it's going to make it more accessible. Therefore, now it was, that was a hotly contended point about the ballot measure. Medical community did not like that. Is is Measure One Ten the legalization or of certain drugs and One Hundred Nine psilocybin? Are they or they both have that kind of language? Just uh, for One Hundred Nine was legalization of psilocybin assisted therapy. Yeah, and then One Ten was decrim of right. most substances at uh, for personal use amounts only. So uh, it's right. not legalization, it's decrim. So right. if you get caught with, say, you know, five grams of psilocybin for personal use, you get a slap on the wrist, you get fined $100, or you have to take a class. Yeah. Um, and I think also, but they are saying that there, you have to have some kind of training that the state approves, so to speak, to be a facilitator. So you might be a high school graduate, yes. which is awesome. You don't have to be like, like you said, it opens up who could take that training Right. Um, but yeah, you do have to take a train. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I will be an instructor in, in one of the programs. Which I'm have you guys, I'm assuming because it's a year and a half away, it's in the, it's in the early stages of developing right now. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. There's kind of, as, as Tom Eckert, who wrote the, the ballot measure with his wife, Shuri, as Tom says, you know, we're building the plane as it's going down the runway, <laughs> but yeah, we are building you- it. Do you think there'll be like, are there unlimited training programs or is it going to be limited? Um, I, I don't know. I, I believe that they are going to create certain stipulations for what the training programs have to include. And then the programs have to apply to be approved by the Oregon Health Authority. Um, but then, yeah, from there, I, I, and I anticipate that there will be several um, and that they'll all be a little different and that. People who want to get the training will hopefully be able to access it. I know that uh, racial equity and equity in other respects is very, very high on the priority list for this. So hopefully we will get some more diversity in this industry and who is able to access psilocybin therapy and the training. For sure. sure. Yeah. Fascinating times. I mean, a lot of eyes mm-hmm. are going to be on how that pans out and probably used as a model in a similar way mm-hmm. to when cannabis became recreational in other states. Like, well, how'd they do it? And like, you know, totally. Um, totally. Well, I hope too that in the experience itself, the, there's some attention paid to the music and uh, I hope so too. And and the role of sort of just protocol or ceremony or just that sort of these these elements that can really inform the journey itself. You know, my experience is mostly in how you guide that journey. And to me, and historically as well, music becomes the ceremony. It becomes the experience. It's the wind it's, in the sails. It's, it's huge. It's huge. And so, so it's not an afterthought for me. It's sort of like, it's yeah. not to say there's one way at all, but it's sort of like this should be a part of the conversation to really help people have the most positive and powerful experiences. Yeah. In my course, I actually have a, a like a mini experiential module where I obviously can't mail everyone LSD all over the world, but we just experience some of the other elements of a psychedelic session. And a part of that is laying with eye shades on and listening to a curated music playlist. 
And it's amazing how just doing that, setting an intention, laying down, listening to music and breathing, how much can shift and how much can come up for a person just from doing that. It's like the the medicine is just part of the medicine. Yeah. Psychedelics are amplifiers. I mean, Mm -hmm. doing breath work with it is powerful. Powerful. Breathe breathe a little harder and it's like, yeah, it'll go places quick uh, and Mm -hmm. very deep emotional places and Mm -hmm. and visual places too uh, for many. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, sharing a little bit about your experience on the ground and your own practice. And um, it's just sort of great to, to, to talk to folks who are going through it in their own way as we go through these changing liminal times. So thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. It was really my pleasure. And I would love to offer uh, your listeners a discount on my, co- on my course, if that seems appropriate. Yeah, where can they find you? This would be a great time. Okay, so the um, the website is scienceofpsychedelics.com. And Krishna, what do you want your coupon code to be? Um, uh, you could just make it East Forest, one word, because that's Forest. the same as the handle for like Instagram okay. stuff. It's easy to remember. Okay. Well, I mean, whatever um, you want it to be. I don't care. No, it let's could be like Forest. machine elves. It could be. No, no, no. Uh... <laughs> East, East Forest. I can remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will get. Anyone that applies that code, 20% off on the course. All right. Continuing medical education and continuing education are also available for practitioners. So this is so relevant right now that the medical community is finally (laughs) acknowledging it and offering professional credit for training in psychedelics. Oh, yeah. I saw that on your site. I do think Mm -hmm. that's, you know, sort of interesting, providing that sort of education for providers and people in the field. That's that's Mm -hmm. a big, big part of it. Huge. Yeah. And, but everyone's welcome to join. You don't have to have any fancy initials after your name to join us. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Well, thank you so much, Erica, for coming on the show. Uh, it's always wonderful to dive into this rapidly changing landscape. Check out her, her website. Her, the link is in the show notes there. Um, but it is just so I can tell you it. It is Erica, E R I C A, Zelfand, Z E L F A N D dot com. This song that you're hearing in the background is called "Sweetly Down," and it features the amazing sweet talents of Sheila Bringy on the Bansuri flute. Uh, so grateful for her talents back on on this song, and joining up for another rec- recording. Um, I'm always amazed by what she can do. So that's from the Possible album, which is out everywhere that you listen to music now. And also, I just want to make a quick note, if you're still here, that I'm sorry that we were out, or it said we were out of some certain merchandise items, like the perfume oils and certain vinyls. We're not out, and those those inventories should be corrected soon. And so you should be able to purchase those items. And I really, really appreciate everyone who's able to uh, re-up on your perfume oils or getting the new Possible album or Ram Dass vinyl or Spores whatever it is among the other things we sell over there because it's another way to help support this project and everything that we are up to so thank you very much alright well hope to see those who can make it in Denver and Salt Lake City in September and more to come soon but until then and until next week you guys keep walking your walk don't take any shit But if you do, do it with grace.